If you're, uh, I know there's folks joining us um, online, Facebook Live or whatever, and you may not be from Colorado, nor anything about Colorado, you just need to know that boots are the epitome of fashion in Colorado, just so you, this is, I asked my wife if it would be okay if I wore my snow boots. I'm not going to tell you what she said. I did what I wanted to do anyhow. I don't know why I asked. <laughs> I meant it as a rhetorical, really what I should have said is, honey, I'm looking for approval. That's what, how I should have prefaced that question. But I didn't, so that was on me. I, uh, I wonder if you could um, do me a little favor. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you a question, and then we're going to park your answer until a little bit later. And just so you know, I'm not going to take any more time than I normally take, but I'm going to actually, we're going to do two sermons this morning, since you've come out and I want to honor your, your, your wow, I, I know that really feels like honoring it. <laughs> Half a sermon would feel like honoring it. I'm going to do two sermons in the time that I usually can just do one. All right, so I've got to go a little faster. All right, so relatively speaking, I know the words rich and poor are for the most part, those are relative terms. We, we, we assess that based on our experience. So here's my question. Did you, growing up as a child or a teen, did you feel you were relatively poor? Or did, in other words, did you have less than what your peers or your classmates may have had? Or did you experience life as a person? Did you have an, a, a sort of an awareness that you might be more resourced? financially. So, just how, just think about that. I'm going to come back to that later. Like I said, I want to, I want to combine two, two messages. I want to talk, and I don't usually use language like this, I want to talk about victory today. I, I want to share with you how to have a victory. Our sermon number one will come from what is perhaps the most famous battle story in the Old Testament. I, I say it's the most famous because even if you're not a person who grew up in church, if you know nothing about church, you would know about this battle. You may not even know that it was in the Bible, but you would know the language around this battle. What do you think I'm talking about? David and Goliath. That's right. So even if you don't know the Bible, you know that David and Goliath, automatically, there is a story there that you're familiar with. I, I don't think we've read the story quite right, to be honest with you. The way we use that in our day-to-day -day vernacular of sort of overcoming, sort of, sort of the, the, the disadvantage to the advantage, I don't think is how this story goes. Let me, let me, I'm going to read parts of it, but some of it I'll just kind of refresh your memory. Now the Philistines had mustered their army for battle and camped between Soka in Judah and Asaka in Ephesus Demin. And Paul countered by gathering his troops near the Valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. So here's how it goes. The Israelites want to go that direction. The Philistines want to take, go that direction. And between them there is a valley. And it would be suicidal for either army to, att to attempt to take the other's high ground. They would have to come from such a, a low position that they really, both armies had said, we can't do this. It's impossible. Now, it's not real common in, in our scriptures, but in that time, 
on these kinds of occasions and in other times in history, you can have representative battle. Representative battle is, I'll send a guy, you send a guy, and whoever wins, that'll be, we'll just say that's the war. And that's what's going to happen here. So the Philistines send out Goliath. Let me describe Goliath for you. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came from the range to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. There's a little, not big controversy, it's possible some of the later texts would have said he was six and a half feet tall. Some of the earlier texts says he was nine and a half feet tall. It doesn't matter because the Israelites, no matter what, when they looked at him, they said he is a giant. So whatever the perspective is, he's bigger than everybody else. All right? He's very tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. You know, that's the chain kinds of stuff. He wore bronze leg iron. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam and tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. This is not a, a throwing spear. This would be a, a carrying spear for close combat. He, you could, with that kind of heft, you, you could probably penetrate maybe a shield or who knows what you could do with something that big. But the story is, the way the story goes is, he's huge and he's incredibly muscular. Here's how you have victory. I'm going to tell you right now. Here's the outline. On both sermons, we'll use the same outline. Victory will depend on your assessment, your assumption, and your assets. Assumptions. The Israeli assumption about this battle was what? You know. Yeah, no chance. It's, it's, there's no chance. Their assessment was, he's big, we're small. They looked around, there were no giants in their ranks, nobody who could carry the kinds of things he could carry. Therefore, they cannot win is their assessment. But their assessment is based on a single assumption. A single assumption is, is driving all of their assessment and all of their fear. And here is their assessment. You have to fight hand-to-hand. -hand. Now, what's interesting is there are, no, as you know, there really are no rules in war. There are traditions in war. There is a, a way we've always done it in war. But there's no rule book where everybody turns to the same page and goes, hey, when we do one of these things, you have to get really close to each other. So their assumption was predicated, and their assessment was predicated on this assumption that you have to fight hand-to-hand -hand and be close. Now, given that assumption, yep, then their assessment was correct. So then we have the story of their assets. And as perhaps you know, I'll tell you this part of the story, Jesse, David's dad, David, the David and Goliath part of the story, had some brothers, and they were all soldiers. And they were there fighting. They were, and they really, I don't know what they were doing all day. They just stood there and looked at Goliath all day and kind of absorbed his insults and they were embarrassed, but they didn't do anything. And David comes to bring them some lunch and some snacks and he notices like, why aren't you guys doing anything? Because we're soldiers and soldiers have to fight hand to hand. But David did not get the memo that you have to fight hand-to-hand. -hand. 
David was the youngest in this family. He was the shepherd. David had an asset that they didn't realize. I want to say that the reason I think we've read this story wrong is we read it as if some kind of miracle has happened. Now, I'm a person who's very generous with the word miracle. I think all of life is a miracle. I think I, I would love to, we can apply miracle to everything. The fact that we get to breathe and live, that's all miracle. But the way we typically use the word miracle is that, that God did something to sort of warp the space-time continuum in some way or whatever. And somehow we read this story as if God did some intervention in that moment. I don't think he did. Oh, I think God did something miraculous. You see, David said, basically, hey, listen, I've spent my whole life as a shepherd. Shepherding is like being a policeman. It's 99% boredom, 1% adrenaline. I don't know if you ever had a friend as a cop. Most of, it's not like on TV where they're constantly in gun battles. Most of the time, it's kind of a tedious job, a lot of paperwork, a lot of just sitting and watching and but about 1% of the job is adrenaline. That's what it is to be a shepherd. A shepherd is mostly boredom. You are mostly all by yourself, and you are watching sheep eat. That's all you do. You're sitting there watching them eat, and you're a kid, and you're bored. Here's my, I think it's a fair assumption. What did David do to kill time? He played with his slingshot. Now, the first time he played with his slingshot, he probably wasn't very good at it, right? But it's, all it is is a couple of pieces of leather and a little pouch and just looking around, and I've been to Israel. There's a lot of rocks. There's no shortage of rocks. And so what is possibly thousands of hours of killing time, of boredom, David, he does say that he's, he's rescued Lambs from lions and bears. He got really good at being a shepherd. So David, as you know in this story, as he assesses his assets, notices that Goliath is for the most part almost immobile. He can't move. He has so much equipment, he has a boy carrying his shield. And David has a different assessment and a different assumption. Because David knows he's pretty good with a slingshot. So as the story goes, they try to put some, you know, put all that armor on him. He can barely move. He could probably hardly stand up. He said, I can't do this. I don't even, let me just do my thing. If we were to be honest in the story, we should put all our money on David. David had all the advantage because he simply changed one of the assumptions, which is you have to fight hand-to-hand -hand and be in close combat. On the way, it says that David picked up five rocks. There's been lots of ink spilled on why the five rocks. I'll give you my guess. He didn't know he was going to hit him the first time. He had five chances. And honestly, if after five chances he hadn't hit him, he could still run up the hill. Goliath does not have a chance against him. And David swings his 
slingshot, hits him square in the head, doesn't even, have, doesn't even have to kill him, he just knocks him down, makes him woozy, goes and grabs his big old sword and cuts his head off. He wins. Bloody story. All right, what are we going to do with, now as we're concluding sermon number one, how many, like, is the goal for us to be prepared in case you have a neighbor you can't get along with who's much bigger than you? And what are you going to do? Start practicing your slingshot or your archery? Or well, I don't think that's the point. I, what I wanted you to see is that sometimes what we think is, is impossible from a different view is really not that impossible. I want you to see that the miracle that God performed was in the life experience that David had. His asset was for sure his faith in God, and he had that confidence. But the reason he wasn't afraid was he just saw it differently. He saw it more accurately. So this idea of our assessment, our assumptions, and our assets can get applied in other places, in other kinds of battles. Maybe what other kind of battle you might be fighting, depression or a physical ailment or spiritual warfare. All of that would work. But I want to apply it in sermon number two to just a specific battle that we don't often talk about. And that battle is found, well, it's found throughout the scripture. You can't, somebody said, if, if we talked about this battle as often as Jesus talked about it, our churches would be empty. This is maybe not his favorite, but this is one of Jesus, this is one of his big topics. He talks about this an awful lot, this battle. It's the battle we have with money. Now, you may not have thought about it as a battle. I'm going to phrase it that way. I'm doing that not as a judgment on you, but as an evaluation of my own life. One of my constant struggles, for sure, has to do with my relationship to money and materialism. And a lot of it is rooted in what I believe about it. Let me read for you just some of what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, to remind you, is, is one way to look at it, maybe a sort of Jesus' broad outline of what life in him looks like. What real life is, not the thing we call life. Don't store up treasures on earth. This is found in Matthew 6. Don't store up treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good or when your eye is clear, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole, light is filled with, your whole body is filled with darkness. And the light you think you have is actually darkness. How deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus uses some really specific language here. 
He does not say it will be very difficult to serve God in money. He says it is an impossibility. I would begin my assessment in my battle at the end of that sentence. My, my assessment needs to maybe begin where Jesus assesses it, that it'll be impossible for me to serve both God and money. Now, I've read this passage many, many times in my life, and I will confess, I've always thought there was this weird little interlude there, like it was a parenthetical statement that had nothing to do with what he was talking about. So he's talking about money for much, much of this chapter. We'll, we'll read some more later. He's just talking about our relationship to money and things and to the material world, and then he has this weird thing about glaucoma going on or cataracts. It seems like, like he, he's referencing people who have a cataract. This kind of seems a fair assessment. This idea, remember when I read about the eye is the, is the sort of the lamp into the, to the body? But if your eye is cloudy, if you have a cataract, no matter how much light is out there, you can't get light in here. I think one way to think of that is this idea of our assessment, how we see something. So here's something that's unique about this battle we have with money and materialism. One is, it is, in some ways, can be the most difficult to diagnose. If we were to advertise that for the next five weeks, we're going to have a sermon series on greed, and we publicize it, we buy billboards, we take out ad space, and we're going to talk about greed for the next five weeks, this would look like a big crowd at the end of that five weeks. Why? Why? It's not, I don't think, because people are afraid to talk about it. It's because most of us believe that's not our issue. Most of us have a sense. Now, we would all know somebody who would need to be in that sermon series. Like, we all know somebody who needs to hear a sermon about greed. But most of us don't have a sense that that's a sermon that we would need. I'm not condemning you. I'm talking about for me, too. My assessment is that that's not a... It, it's difficult in that way. Like if, if, think about some other sins. You, you, you wouldn't be one day going, Whoa! I didn't know that was a... I didn't know that I was having an affair. When, when did she show up? Like, you, you would know, yeah, I'm, I know it's wrong, but I'm doing this anyhow. Somehow, I think materialism is the one where we have a cloudy perspective on it. What is it? So it's hard. What we see in others is how we assess and evaluate ourselves. Kind of back to that question we'll come to in a minute, that I had at the very beginning. That somehow my relationship to materialism is relative to your relationship to materialism. And as long as I know somebody who has a nicer car and a bigger house and better vacations, I'm kind of off the hook. Hey, because God, that's what materialism looks like. And I'm not that. The problem is that in and I don't know if Jesus is connecting. Remember when he talked about the log and the splendor and the whole eye thing, that the way we see is distorted? And now we're talking about an eye again in a way? I, 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 I don't think that's a very good assessment. In other words, 
It has nothing to do with somebody around me. It has to do with only my heart. Some of the assumptions that we might make um, are one, that we think we can tell. We have an innate belief that we can see it in others, but it's kind of hard to see in ourselves. The other is, and this is a little bit of a side note, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just share something with you. We think we even just know what money is. We think we have a very good grasp on money. Let me give you a little illustration. I've got three coins in my hand here. I, could, I, I should have grabbed a nickel, I don't have a nickel, but the, the penny, other than the fact that it is a different color, but if I had a nickel here, and I had the penny, and I've got a quarter and a dime, what, do you, what would you notice right away that is different between the quarter and the dime, and if I had a half dollar, it would be true of that too, and the nickel and the penny? Size is different, but the, but the dime is smaller than the penny. But it, in what I'm talking about, it is similar to the quarter and the half dollar. Color, but the nickel is the same color, if I had a nickel. It's on the edge. The difference is the edge. So, you can hear this. The dime, quarter, half dollar, and up have ridges on the edge. And I'll bet you don't know why. Some people think it's for durability, but what, we don't care about nickels and pennies? It has nothing to do with durability. It has to do with what is money. You see, money has historically had some definitions. It has to be durable. It has to be precious or scarce. It has to be um, portable. And the last one is the most important. It has to be, and it's a funny word, it has to be fungible. Weird word, right? Fungible means that any portion of it does not denigrate the whole. For example, there are times when people have tried to figure out what is money. And we all know that money is not, in one sense, doesn't do us any good. It's only good because it can get me something else. So a long, long, long time ago, each family had to, they had to make their own clothes, do their own food, do their own housing, and then somebody discovered, hey, what if I sort of, I'll, I'll do all the farming, you do all the building, and we'll trade. That was a good system. But then the guy he was trading with, his stuff started to rot. And so he, he couldn't get it, couldn't make the exchange fast enough in bigger economies. And so they came up with the idea, and is rooted in the scriptures, with money. So money becomes sort of this, this way that I can, I can hold my value of what I can do in order to get from you the thing that you do. It's a great system. So historically and typically, that's why gold and silver have most often been what we call money, because they meet all those criteria. Fungible, again, means that if I take a little bit of it, so if I, if, I, if I wanted to use a diamond, for example, and I wanted to buy some milk, and I just chipped off a little piece of diamond to buy my milk, I've now ruined the value of that diamond. The smallness doesn't equal the same proportion to the big one. So that's why diamonds don't work. They meet the other criteria. Shells, other kinds of things. 
So what about these ridges? So back in Roman days, they began to mint coins. They put the emperor on the one side, Jesus references that, and they put a picture on the back, and then they were smooth. Originally, the coins were all smooth. And I would go and I would buy from the, from the merchant, I would buy my eggs and give him my denarii or my whatever it was. And then the, the evil merchants would go in the back room and they would take a very sharp knife and they would imperceptibly shave just the tiniest sliver off the edge of the coin. The coin was protected on the surface, you, would, you could see it, but on the edge, it was very difficult to tell. And so over time, as that money got passed around and people began to discover, hey, I can take a little bit, and over time, I'll have more than somebody else. I can cheat them, and they won't know that I'm cheating them. It's the perfect system. We have a word for that. It's where our word kind of comes from. There's a word we use in economics that is the description of taking money and shaving just a little bit off of it so that the money becomes less valuable. And you know what that word is? That's the word inflation. See, we've been conditioned, and our assessment and our assumption is that inflation means that prices are getting more expensive. What it means is that somebody is taking a little bit of money, and we don't even know it. That over time, the money will have less value than it has today. When I was a kid, I could buy a soda for a dime. And then I remember when sodas went from a dime to a quarter. Was it that that sodas became more scarce? It was more difficult to find Coca-Cola? No, what happened? Well, our money changed. The reason I say that is because the Bible speaks very often about stealing from the poor. You see, people who are resourced, who can collect a lot of these coins, they can protect themselves against inflation because they can take those coins and they can buy something that has a, what we call the hard asset. You could buy gold or silver. We won't get into all of what money is, but, or you can buy a house or you can buy, you can buy a machine or a, or a tool. You can buy something. But a poor person usually can't accumulate enough of these together. And so what happens over long periods of time when you have a system where there is inflation, and I'm not saying anybody intentionally is doing it, but whenever you have inflation, you will always have people becoming richer and more people becoming poorer over a long period of time. Those who are in poverty, that group will grow over a long period of time. You can make short little intercessions to it. All of that. It's just to challenge what we, that we know all about money. We know how it works. We know what to do. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with folks who know nothing about money, and they're educated people. It's not their fault, but they don't know. They don't know that if you buy something on credit, you're paying exorbitantly more than the value of it. That over a long period of time, if you buy on credit, you will lower your standard of living. You will not raise your standard of living. But what, what is the belief system we have? What is our assumption? This is all that Jesus is talking about, a clear eye. 
and about money and the, and the insidious way that money can get into our lives and we don't even know it. I don't intend to cheat the poor by participating in an inflationary system. But now I have to be aware of that. All right. So we have our, our assessment and our assumptions. What are some other assumptions we make about money? I'll give you two. Money can make me safe, and money can make me significant. I don't like to admit that. If, if, if I were to take the um, Jesus Follower 101 test, and on the test it said, will money make you significant? I would say, no, no, no. Can money make you safe? No, 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 no. I know the right answer. That's, that would be the wrong answer. But if you were to ask me, how do I live sometimes? If you were to follow me around, if you were to live inside of my head, or you were to watch the way I use money, there would be times you could conclude that I believe money can make me safe, and I believe money can make me important. If we're going to have this battle with money, and I believe there's so much we could talk about, and I don't, I, trust me, my, my goal was not to have one of those experiences which I've had so many times where I know we're going to talk about money at church, and I'm going to leave feeling like crap. Like, I'm not going to leave going, wow, that felt really hopeful and graceful, and, and man, I'm doing okay. Like, 100% of the time, I'm going to go, ah, I'm, just, I'm doing terrible. That's not what I want to do. Because I believe the story that Jesus is always telling is, 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 why is he telling me a story? Why is he talking about money? So that I'll feel like crap? No, because Jesus wants me to be free. Jesus wants me to be free. And he, he, in compassion, is the one who says, you can't serve two masters, Carl. And one of those masters wants to kill you. And one of those masters wants to give you life. Nobody can serve two masters. You'll love the one, and you'll hate the other. What are my assets? Oh, Lord, I know that in, my, I know that in this room, and I know in my, in my world, there are people who are facing what feels like catastrophic financial difficulties. I know that if you're like me, you're sitting here, and there are things that make you afraid about your future. And like me, there have been times I've prayed, oh God, will you intervene? Will you miraculously twist space and time and do something about my money situation? And, and God does do that sometimes. But I'm here to tell you that God is doing a miracle in a way that maybe you haven't noticed. And that is your assets. It's possible that he's already equipped you to deal with this battle with money in a way that you didn't realize. For example, if you grew up poor, you gained skills that people who grew up rich didn't have. Think about it for a minute. If you, those of you who grew up poor, and, I, and maybe you were, your poverty was beyond belief, and I'm not trying to, to make light of that, but most likely you were just poor relative to your friends. But here's some things you learned that maybe your friends didn't learn. You learned how to stretch a dollar. You learned where to find a value. You learned how to wait for something that you wanted until you, you could accumulate and, and, and earn enough to have it. 
You didn't have immediate gratification if you grew up in a poor home as a child. You learned some things that maybe other people don't know. And here's the most important thing you learned. As you look back, it didn't kill you. And in fact, you were not any happier, less happy, or more happy. Only as you look back do you know that. In the moment, you thought, oh my gosh, if I could have all the things my friends have, I could be the happiest kid in the world. But now that you look back, you know that isn't true. And the same is true if you grew up well-resourced. One asset you have is you now can look back and go, you know what? Money is not the thing that made the difference in the joy in my life. I know that. I've learned that over time. There's a couple of other assets I want you to recognize that you have. You have your theology. You know that Jesus wants to free you. And you know, you know that, that the antidote to my material, my antidote to materialism is generosity. I know that. It's not a hidden secret in the Bible. How do, how do we begin to, to deal with my addiction to wanting more? Generosity and gratitude. I know those to be true. And then there's one more, and this is the most difficult, maybe the most difficult. I can ask for help. We're in a room of people, and we're all in this together. There's no freaks in here. Like, we're all, Jesus knows, we're all going to struggle with this. That's why he's talking about it. And he's not shaming us. But we individually, when we sit by ourselves in, a little, in our, our, our little chair, and we might feel like, the one freak in the room. I can guarantee you that every one of us in this room has struggled with this topic. And we can just ask each other, hey, what do you do? How do you deal with that? What do you think about? Our community is always going to be one of our assets. Your life experience could be your miracle. Your Theology of gratitude and generosity can help set you free, and you can ask for help. I know that there's a million things we could talk about, and I'd love to sit down and have any conversation you want. Please don't hear me making any political statement or any condemnation, and if I've done that, I apologize. That's not my intent. My intent is I want to be free of the brain damage of trying to serve two masters. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I'm grateful. I was really happy to hear Peter talk about how the year ended. And that is a gift from you. And that is because people who know you and love you, I know it's because they practice generosity. And I know that in that moment, they stored for themselves treasure in heaven where nothing Nothing can get it. Oh God, I pray that I would trust you, that you will take good care of the treasure that I give away. I don't know exactly how all that looks or works, but I know you're good. So Lord, here in a moment when we, when we practice once again remembering your death and your resurrection, Remind us of what generosity looks like. Amen.
on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, as I prayed, practiced generosity. He, he didn't hold anything back. He, he, he very accurately assessed the situation. And he knew that in death there is life. In fact, that is the only life that comes out of death. It says on the night that he was betrayed that he broke the bread and said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And do this in remembrance. In other words, when you do it, practice, rehearse in your brain once again what is true, what you know to be true. And that is that you are loved and you can be set free. In the same way, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. I messed that up, I can tell. I'm learning to go by the smell of it. This is the juice, right? This juice. You got it right. Oh, I got it right? Okay, okay. I thought maybe juice. That's right. All right, as long as I keep them consistent. So that'll be juice. This will be wine. Jesus said this is the blood of his new covenant. One of the ways I, when I hear the word covenant, I just say to myself, this is a new deal, a, 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 new, trans, a new way to transact with God. There was been this assumption. I don't know that it was true, but it's been the assumption in all of humanity that it's up to you. It's on you. The weight of connecting with God, or for God to love you, to be connected to you, that's on you. You've got to be good. Jesus said, I got a whole new deal for you. I'll do it all. I'll make a way to God. I'll be the peace for you. So, I'm going to invite you to come and take the cup and the bread and remember his generosity.